Hey, uh, we're going to conclude our current series on mercy today, but I wanted to let you know that next week, uh, visiting back with us is guest teaching pastor Steve Carter is going to be here, and uh, uh-huh. And Steve did a, a talk with the staff last time he was here uh, based on his book called The Thing Beneath the Thing. And it was an amazing talk. And I said, hey, could you come back and would you share that with our whole church? And so he's going to be back. He's bringing a bunch of his books that will be available for you, an opportunity to get that signed. But that talk that he does uh, is an incredible one. And I know you'll be blessed to be here uh, next week. Well, today, as I said, we conclude this current series on mercy. And in a few moments, I want to jump into a passage of Scripture uh, that is about a story with three traps in it. Three traps that are set, that are deliberately put in place with an intended target in mind. I, I wonder if you've ever had to trap anything, like a, a rodent or a pest in the, in the ceiling at home or something, and you devised a plan, you, you thought about how are you going to catch this squirrel that's nested in your attic, or birds have got in, or whatever and you, uh, you come up with a plan to trap this particular target. And I remember I was about 10 or 11 years old, and we lived in a house that was right on the outskirts of town, and so behind us was just open fields. So we would have a lot of animals that we would see, like uh, rabbits and foxes and snakes and spiders and a kangaroo or two. And this uh, one day... This one season, we had these wild feral cats that were coming around. And the problem was they would always get into our trash and make all kinds of mess. And one morning, my dad gets up, and there is our trash sprawled out onto the ground. He's like, that's it. It's time to set a trap for this feral cat. And so dad had built a, um, a car pit in the garage, about six, six feet deep, and so he could just climb down there and work on the cars, like drive over the top and change the oil and all that kind of stuff. And over the carpet, he had put uh, six-inch boards that cover it. And so this was Dad's plan. He would remove some of the boards and lay newspaper over the top of the pit. And then right in the middle, leave one board, put newspaper over it, and get some uh, old food scraps, put them in a trash bag, and put that right on top leave the garage door up, and let's see if we can't catch ourselves feral cat. I'm 10, 11 years old. I'm loving these, these, right? And so sure enough, about midnight, we hear this terrible screech from this cat who has fallen into the trap. And there is such delight and such success that is felt when you devise a trap and your intended target falls for it. Love it when a plan comes together, right? A team, ladies and gentlemen. Um, if you know, you know. <laughs> so uh, what happened to this cat? Well, what I think happened that was told to a 10-year-old boy is dad took it to friend's dairy farm and let it loose, right? Okay. <laughs> We are choosing to believe that's what happened to the feral cat, okay? That's what I got told. That's what I'm believing. So I want to take us to a passage today about three particular traps. 
Now, before I take you to this particular passage, I want to make a couple of remarks to it because if you go in your Bible to John chapter 8 and meet me there in a couple of moments, you may find something written in the footnote or perhaps just simply a disclaimer that says something like, the most ancient manuscripts do not include this passage in John. So what does that mean? Well, this has to do with contextual criticism, which is the science of taking the original manuscripts of the Bible and working them into and translating them into our English Bible today. So for hundreds of years, scholars have debated where this particular story should go. See, some people believe, some scholars believe that it writes a little more like Luke's writing than it does John's writing. Now, there is a whole lot of different interpretations of where this story should go, but there is certain consensus that it does belong in the New Testament. It's just debated where it belongs, okay? So when you see that in your Bible, that's what's going on there. So with that, if you're able, would you please stand to your feet, and we're gonna read from God's Word, and we're gonna read this story from John Chapter 8, beginning in verse 2 to verse 11. And the word of God reads, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one, has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. A story with three traps. The first trap I'm titling the bait trap. It's so easy to read over this text, to, to, to skim over it and feel on first blush, that you have a good grasp of what's happening in the story here. But these last couple of weeks, we've been studying the mercy of God. We've been looking at the character of God, and to understand more of his character is to understand that God is mercy, that mercy cannot be separated from who God is. So today, I wanna invite us to slow down in this particular passage, to unpack it together, and look at it through a fresh lens of mercy this morning. 
for us to take a kind of second look and see a recognizable opportunity to read this with fresh eyes that this is one of the greatest recorded acts of mercy. And importantly for us this morning as Christ follows, we're called to emulate that kind of mercy. A couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to visit a maximum security prison. I was there to visit uh, several prisoners and when you, as a pastor, visit prisoners, uh, it's not appropriate for you to ask, you know, like, what did you do and how long are you in for and so forth. But what often inevitably happens is as you sit down and have an opportunity to hear their story, part of their story is how it came that they came to be in the place that they're in. Well, I spent all day at this place and I uh, had long conversations with many inmates and this one particular inmate, we had a long conversation sitting down together and he started off and I'll never forget what he said. He said, Pastor, I am guilty. He said, I'm guilty of adultery. I cheated on my wife. She deserves better and I deserve to be in here. I did it, I committed adultery. He said one day uh, a, a woman seduced him and invited him back to her motel room. He said they entered into the room and they began in a wrong relationship. Well, soon into this wrong relationship, the woman suddenly screams. And he said to me what seemed like immediately, the motel door burst open and two police officers came in and grabbed him and arrested him. He was convicted of a non-consensual act and abuse, and he was sentenced to life imprisonment. When I was sitting with this inmate this day, he had currently served 26 years of that sentence. Now the mercy of God. The reason that I was invited to this prison that day was to speak to 50 inmate pastors, and one of them was this man. God's mercy met him in the prison. He gave his life to Christ. He studied seminary, and he is now an ordained pastor, and he leads a church of inmates of 300 inside the prison walls. <laughs> to hear that story means that whenever I approach this text in John 8, I've never been able to read it in quite the same way. When you understand that a setup was in play. Luke writes, be merciful just as your father is merciful. The forefront of our minds, be merciful just as our Father is merciful. See, it should be easier for us, I'm going high challenge early, it should be easier for us to have mercy on sinners than it is the virtuous. See, to have mercy is to project ourselves into their life for a moment. As the old saying goes, to walk a mile in their shoes, to feel what they might be feeling, to think what they might be thinking, and to acknowledge that if it was not for the mercy of God, you and I would not be able to stand in his presence. So again, I say Luke's words, be merciful just as your father is merciful. So back 
to the text. The, the teachers of the law and, and, and these Pharisees' act was so merciless in that it was a calculated trap. They have caught this woman in their plan. You see, scholars believe that John 8 was indeed a trap for this woman. You see, to be caught in the act, in, in that culture, you had to have two eyewitnesses to any act for it to be credible. So here is this most vulnerable, specific act happening in the morning, mind you, and there just happens to be two men that are lurking around, just happen to be there at the right time to catch this woman in the act. Come on, how likely is that? How long were they really there waiting in anticipation for their trap, for their intended target, for their plan to come into play and to pounce in and catch this woman early in this morning? By the way, doesn't adultery take two participants? So where is the man in all of this? Could it be that he was a co-conspirator to this plan all along? That the Pharisees had no intentions of taking the man before Jesus because he was part of the plan. He was part of the bait trap. Remember, the Pharisees are the religious elite of the day. They prided themselves on their morality, and yet evidence tells us here that they acted in such a malicious and immoral premeditated manner. The first trap in this story is the bait trap, and the woman is the bait. The second, I'm calling the intended trap. The first trap was just the bait. Now the intended trap. You get ready for this to be revealed. The Pharisees, these self-appointed agents of righteousness, now conspire to trap Jesus. They use this woman in her shame, in her brokenness, her sin, and they simply use her in a cruel pawn in their trap. They care nothing for her future ruin, and they simply use her as a dispensable part of their plan. Now, what they do next to this woman is absolutely merciless. It's brutal and humiliating. They interrupt Jesus' teaching in the morning in the temple courts, and they shove this woman, most likely still naked, before him. How must this woman have felt this public humiliation ever since Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden? One of the most humiliating things for a human being to endure is to be caught naked. And here this woman, naked of all places in the temple courts, it must have felt like in front of the entire town. She realizes that this was a trap, this was a setup. And here she is in the temple courts naked. You could imagine the tears rolling down her face. Her head hung in shame. She realizes there's no grace or mercy to be found here. Imagine with me, she attempts to, to cover up her nakedness, but at the same time realizing there is no way for her to cover up her sin. It's exposed for all to see. 
front of all of the religious elite. And here is the Pharisees' moment. The teachers of the law have been working their plan up for this moment. Jesus is their intended target. Their trap is for Jesus. And imagine at this point, the Pharisees are delighted that their plan has worked. They're full of confidence. They're full of what is satisfaction about being able to capture Jesus in their trap. And one appointed Pharisee speaks up and he says, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. It is so salacious. This woman was caught so arrogant and obnoxious. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. Here's the pious. In the, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They're almost salivating with anticipation. They feel so good about their successful plan. And now is their moment, their intended trap. So here's what's at play. Here is what the Pharisees have devised to catch Jesus out and to trap him. Firstly, they know that he has taught grace and mercy to the multitudes. And so what is he gonna do in this case? Is he gonna uphold Moses' law or is he gonna extend grace and mercy? They've got him trapped. They've got him trapped. But it's even deeper than that to understand Roman law. You see, the, the Jewish nation was under Roman law at this point. They were conquered by the Romans. Now, Romans were known for allowing some what would be called uh, like local law or own law, meaning some cultural laws to still take place in their conquered nations. They would uh, permit some of the local laws to take place, but the Romans did not allow the exercise of capital punishment. That had to come under still the authority of the Romans. Now, Jewish law called for uh, the stoning to death of adultery, but Roman law did not. It did not call for uh, capital punishment. Now, Roman law was different to Jewish law when it came to how they executed capital punishment. In Jewish law, you were stoned to death. But in Roman law, do you know what Roman law execution was? Crucifixion, right, yes. So now you understand, Jesus could not be uh, tried, convicted, and sentenced under Jewish law. That would mean he would be stoned to death. He had to be convicted under Roman law so that he was killed on a cruel Roman cross. Okay, so what's at play here is they want to set Jesus up to either uphold Jewish law and stone this woman or to hold up Roman law. Now, if he chooses Jewish law, they run straight to the Roman authorities and they say, we've got him, we trapped him. He, this rebel, is trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. We have got him. Or he upholds Moses' law and stones him, stones her, and then, sorry, that's going to the Romans. If he 
doesn't, and he doesn't uphold Jewish law in that moment. They have got him in the fact that now he has publicly disgraced Jewish law. Now they can dismiss all of his teachings. They've discredited him publicly and they can be done with him once and for all. This is the intended trap, ladies and gentlemen. This is what's going on in this text. But the next trap is what I call the reverse trap. At play is this glaring contrast between the Pharisees who called judgment on this woman in such a callous and merciless way. And in doing so, they had one major oversight in their plan. One major oversight. They brought the woman to the wrong judge. (laughs) They grossly underestimated the mercy of God. They brought this woman to Jesus and they could not plan for what happened next. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Here is the reverse trap. Now, many of you would know that the Bible doesn't record what Jesus wrote on the ground that day. And and scholars for centuries have debated and discussed and disputed, like, what possibly could it have been that Jesus stooped down and wrote in the ground that day? It records that he wrote something and he stood up and the Pharisees continued to question him. And so once again, he went down. And imagine with me that he writes the name of a well-known prostitute in the town, and then he looks up and gets eye contact with three specific men (laughs) who are looking. Perhaps he goes down and he writes, child neglect, spousal abuse, and again, slowly lifts his head to get deliberate eye contact with specific men in that circle. Perhaps he writes down embezzlement, fraud, tax evasion, and this time looking at three different men. Continues to do that because they underestimated that Jesus can see into their souls. The Bible tells us that one by one, the older first, Now, we know why the older first, right? (laughs) Because the longer you live in this life, the more aware of your shortcomings you become, right? (laughs) Let me put it this way. I remember specifically the time that I climbed to the summit of all knowledge and experience at the age of 21. (laughs) I, I never knew more than when I was 21 an opinion on everything and worth listening to, by the way. (laughs) And then every year after that, I've continued to grow in my knowledge of just how much I don't know, of just how much I still have to learn. Every year after that, I've grown in the knowledge of God's mercy and love for me. And every year after that, I've grown in the knowledge of just how much I don't deserve. God's love and mercy in my life. 
It was the older men who recognized their shortcomings and their hypocrisy first, and they stepped away. Old people in our church, let me speak to you again for a moment. We, we need you in our children's ministry. We need you in our youth ministry. We need you in our young adult ministry. For there is wisdom in experience. The young people don't know what they don't know. And you, with grace and mercy, and the Bible calls you to minister in gentleness, give to the next generation. Please don't sit on the bench and say, I've retired from serving in the church. Young person, enjoy your early 20s. <laughs> this is not to condemn those years. Enjoy it. There's this saying, ignorance is bliss. Be blissful. <laughs> What if this same Jesus can see into your soul and my soul this morning? Let's continue on in the story. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Now don't miss this. What Jesus said to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is, those of you who are without sin, throw the first stone. He, he did call judgment, you just had to be without sin in order to throw that stone. Now, Jesus could have and would be just in order to have judged her guilty, for he was there and he was without sin, and yet he doesn't throw a stone at her. I love this picture. Jesus, who can see into our souls, sees into the soul of this woman, and he doesn't condemn her. Imagine that there is now a pile of stones that have been dropped by all of these Pharisees. And Jesus looks on at these stones and this is one of the reasons I personally like this passage being in John. Because in John chapter eight, now passage today, the, the Pharisees wanna use those stones to throw at the woman. In two short chapters later, John records that those same teachers of the law and the Pharisees now wanna use those same stones to throw at Jesus. And imagine with me, Jesus looking at the cost that he would pay to give mercy to this woman. It wasn't free. He knew ultimately it would be his life executed on a cruel, blood-stained Roman cross. Jesus extends mercy. He doesn't condemn her. See, if he had of, we, we looked at this definition last week, justice is getting what you deserve. This woman had sinned. 
But Jesus doesn't condemn. He extends mercy towards her. He releases her. Mercy's not getting what you deserve. It's being released from your sin. And then he doesn't leave it there because he doesn't condone her actions either. He doesn't condemn. He doesn't condone. He forgives and he releases. He extends something for her future, which is freedom in grace. For in grace, we receive what we don't deserve. It's freedom for our future. It is being released from our past, from the one who sees into our souls. Pastor Tony Evans writes, we do not obey God in order to earn forgiveness. Rather, grace and mercy are to motivate our obedience. When we truly understand God's amazing grace, we do not go out and merely sin less. We go out and seek to sin no more. You see, God's mercy forgives us from holding on to our past. Let me just say that again because I want that to sink in. God's mercy forgives us from holding on to our past and it frees us for our future. That's really, really important to know the character and heart of God. His mercy is to release us from our past and to free us for our future. How often do we stay parked in the past? We have to receive his mercy, friends. We have to receive it. We have to let go of where we have fallen into the trap of the same sin over and over again in our lives. So I wonder where you feel trapped today. Maybe you feel trapped in, in an unhealthy relationship that you feel like you can't get out of. Maybe you feel trapped in a bad business deal that has you locked in. Maybe you feel trapped in a secret sin, a, a, a secret habit that no one knows about and it happens in the darkness and you feel trapped by it. You, you, you feel bound by this habit, this secret and, and the enemy has been using the secrecy of this behaviour to keep you trapped by it. Shame keeps you trapped. Some addiction. When you creep out into another room and you look at pornography, no one knows that you do it when you hide alcohol in another kind of container and no one realizes what it is and you know that you're addicted to this behavior. Perhaps it's some medicated drugs and, and you've, you've told yourself for a long time, well, this was, this was prescribed by my doctor, but you know that that was long, long ago. But you just feel trapped. You feel trapped by it. It has some kind of grip over your life. Maybe you're listening to my voice and, 
And the truth of the trap that you have in your life is trying to gain the approval of others. You feel constantly trapped by wanting to please your parents or your mother-in-law or win the approval of your father-in-law or, or a friend, to be, to be invited into that fr- friend group, to, to feel established in it and, and you just feel trapped to constantly trying to gain the approval. Maybe you feel trapped to some spending habits. You can't seem to stop buying stuff on credit and, it, and it's this trap of envy and comparison and trying to keep up with culture that's saying you've gotta have more and more stuff and you just feel trapped by it. What is it that has enslaved you? That you feel imprisoned by and you can't seem to forgive yourself. You you can't seem to let go of your past, even though the invitation of God's mercy has been extended to you. And His gift of grace to free you for your future, for you to no longer to be bound by that past sin behaviour, but set up for the future. Those of you who were here on our Good Friday service, we we talked about the power of leaving our sin, our, our garbage, and dumping it at the cross and leaving it there. We talked about how often we, we seem to go back to the dump site of the foot of the cross and we take back some of those sins that have trapped us for so long. We, we don't seem to know how to do life without them. We, we don't seem to be able to forgive ourselves, even though God is extending mercy to us. After that service, I received an email from a new hoper and they wrote, The garbage I keep trying to sneak out of the dump is 40 years old. Yuck, what a waste of the blood of Christ. Hey, what are you doing? Bring that back here right now. But I have to carry this. It's my mistake and it hurt other people. It's not yours. It's mine, I bought it with my blood. So put it right back down and leave it here. Yes, Lord. I'll try and thank you. Isaiah 61.1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord anointed me to bring good news to the humble. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. We weren't intended to not receive the mercy of God, to see the sins written in the ground from our Lord and Saviour, the one who has the authority to forgive and to dismiss the sins of our past. And he tells us, I came to set you free. You've been captive by a sin pattern for too long in your life. Now receive the mercy of God and be freed for your future. 
thankfully, Jesus provides what I cannot. He takes my place receiving the just punishment my sin deserves. In a glorious, wonderful exchange, He switches places with me. Jesus substitutes His righteousness for my sin. His resurrection power becomes mine in that though I was dead, I am now alive through Him. God looked at me. He no longer applying the weight of my sin on my shoulder, but He applies the weight and the work of the cross over it. And He is pleased to accept through Jesus, His Son, payment in full. Only God's unconditional mercy, only His unconditional mercy, His boundless love can explain why Jesus would be my substitute. And for the mercy that made Jesus do that, I will be forever indebted to Him. So now come with me afresh to your sin scales today and meet the mercy of God. He sees into your soul. He looks over the weight of all this that has entrapped you, some for more than 40 years. And He says, you can dump that all here, all of it. You can dump that here. Leave it with me. Leave it at the foot of the cross. Your failed marriage, you can leave that here. Your deep sense of shame, leave it here. The sense of failure that you've held onto for you lost your job, leave it here. Your guilt over having that abortion all those years ago, leave it here. Your porn addiction, leave it here. Your drinking, your drugs, your sleeping around, your lying, your cruelty, your slander, your selfish ways, leave it here. Dump it at my feet. Receive my mercy and be released. Receive my grace and be freed. Be freed. <laughs> So God in heaven, I know it's your heart to wanna break some chains this morning. And Father, as I prayed for this moment this week, I pray God just humbly by the power of the mercy of God, you would move in this room in such a way that some people would say, I cannot carry it any longer. I receive the mercy of God and I leave this life of sin. So God, as we come around a time of communion now, I wanna pray that your Holy Spirit would just fall in this place. I wanna pray, God, that there would be some people that would say, I let go of a 40-year-old trap today. And I receive the freedom of God in His grace. We pray you would do that, Lord Jesus, in your merciful name, amen.